You're listening to Writers on a New England Stage with Simon Winchester. This program originally aired in 2010. Simon Winchester took the stage and began reading from Atlantic. He then shared stories about how the historic struggle to command the ocean continues to influence geopolitics today. Well, thank you all very much. What I thought I'd do this evening is um, read a small chunk of the book to set the scene and then tell you just a couple of stories that uh, you, you may find vaguely amusing, and then Virginia and I will talk. So let me start by, by reading you a, a little bit of this book j- just to, to set the scene for what the book is really all about. The way I did the book is the initial idea was to call it Atlantic, the Biography of an Ocean, but Barnes & Noble, who buy a significant quantity of books, said that the biography of an ocean was probably the most boring title they could imagine. <laughs> so would I sex it up a bit? And we eventually came up with Great Sea Battles, Heroic Discoveries, Titanic Storms, and a Vast Ocean of a Million Stories, which, which, my, which my English editor said that is so American, you couldn't possibly. So all he could agree to put in was a vast ocean of a million stories. But I want you to know that The subtitle was not my invention. The only word that remains is Atlantic. So it was written as a biography with a beginning dealing with the the origins of the ocean when it was born 200 million years ago and the likely death of it when it will cease to be in about 170 million years. And then seven chapters in the middle, the, 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 the heart of the book, the kernel, if you were, which organized according to the seven ages of man from Shakespeare's As You Like It. So... There's a preface also uh, telling the story of when I first went across the ocean on Alina, the Empress of Britain in 1963. But this is, this is from the prologue of the book, and it'll be about maybe six or seven minutes, I, I hope, roughly that sort of time. A big ocean, and the Atlantic is a very big ocean indeed, has the appearance of a settled permanence. Stand anywhere beside it and stare across its swells towards the distant horizon, and you're swiftly lulled into the belief that it has been there forever. All who like the sea, and surely there can be precious few who do not, have a favoured place in which to stand and stare. For me, it has long been the Faroe Islands, up in the far North Atlantic, where all is cold and wet and bleak. In its own challenging way, it is entirely beautiful. Eighteen islands, each one a sliver of black basalt, frosted with gale-blown salt grass and tilted up alarmingly from east to west, make up this Atlantic outpost of the Kingdom of Denmark. Fifty-odd thousand Faroese fishermen and sheep farmers cling there in ancient and determined remoteness, like the Vikings from whom they descend and whose vestiges of language they still speak. Rain, wind and fog mark out these islanders' days, although from time to time and on almost every afternoon in high summer, The mists suddenly swirl away and are replaced by a sky of a clarity and blue brilliance that seems to be known only in the world's high latitudes. It was on just a day like this that I chose to sail across a lumpy and capricious sea to the westernmost member of the archipelago, the island of Mikinesh. This is an island much favoured by artists who come for its wild solitude and its total subordination to the nature that so entirely surrounds it. And going there left a deep impression. In all my wanderings around the Atlantic, I can think of no place that ever gave me so great an impression of perching on the world's edge. No better place to absorb and begin to comprehend the awful majesty of this enormous ocean. The landing on Mikinesh was exceptionally tricky. The boat surfed in on the green breaking top of an ocean roller into the tiny harbour. Its skipper tying up for just enough time to let me clamber out onto a cement quay lethal with slippery eelgrass. A staircase of rough stones rose up to the skyline, and I scrambled upward, only too well aware of the deep chasm filled with boiling surf far below beside me. But I made it. Up on top, there were a scattering of houses, a church, a shop, and a tiny inn, its sitting room heavy with the smell of pipe smoke and warm, wet sweater wool. A sudden furious blast of wind had driven away the morning fog and the sun revealed a long steep slope of grass that stretched right up the island tilt clear up to the western sky. There was a grassy pathway leading up to this high horizon and a skein of islanders was moving slowly up it like a line of ants. I joined them out of curiosity. To my great surprise most were dressed in Faroese finery 
the men in dark blue and scarlet jackets with high necks and rows of silver buttons, knee breeches and silver buckled shoes, the women in wide striped long skirts, blue vests fastened with an elaborate cat's cradle of chains and fringed scarves. And though a few men had anoraks with folded felt snoods, none wore hats, the incessant wind would have whipped them away. The children, dressed just as their parents, whooped and skirled and slid on the wet grass, their elders tutting them to keep their boots clean and to be careful not to fall. It took 30 minutes to do the climb, and none of the islanders seemed to break a sweat. They all gathered at a site by the cliff top where the grass was flattened. There was a memorial stone here, a basalt cross, incised with the names, I was told, of the fishermen who had died in the Icelandic fishing grounds off to the west. The crowd, perhaps a hundred in all, arranged themselves beside the summit marker, a cairn of basalt boulders, waiting. After a few minutes, a white-haired man of sixty or so, puffing a little from exercise, appeared at the top of the path. He was dressed in a long black surplice with a ruffled high collar that made him look like he had stepped from the pages of a medieval chapbook. He was a Lutheran pastor from the Faroese capital town of Torshaven. He proceeded to lead a service helped by two church wardens who played accordions and one island lad with a guitar. A pair of pretty young blonde children handed around some damp hymn sheets and the villagers' high voices set to singing old Norse holy songs. The thin music instantly swept away to sea by the gale as it was designed to be. The islanders said that the small religious ceremony was quite without precedent. In the past, it had always been a visiting pastor from Denmark, a thousand miles south, who would come here to bless the island's long-drowned sailors. But today made history, it was explained, because for the first time ever, the minister was Faroese. In its own gentle and respectful way, the dedication service, with its prayers offered in the local tongue, offered an indication of just how these remote mid-ocean islands had drawn themselves steadily away from the benign invigilation of their European motherland. They had gone their own way at last, an island way, remarked one of the congregants, an Atlantic way. After the service was finally over, I strolled behind the dispersing crowd and without warning, suddenly and terrifyingly, reached the cliff edge. The grass cut off as with a blade, and in its place there was just a huge hollow emptiness of wind and space, the black wet walls of a hurtling precipice of basalt cliffs, with crawling almost half a mile below, the tides and currents and spume of the open sea. Hundreds of puffins stood in nooks in the cliff edge, some no more than an arm's length away, and all quite careless of my presence. They looked like ridiculous, stubby creatures with that mask face, chubby cheeks, and a coloured bill that was so often crammed full with a clutch of tiny fish. But every so often one took to the air and soared off into the sky with an easy and contented grace, ridiculous no more. I must have sat at the edge for a long, long time, staring, gazing, mesmerised. The gale had finally stopped its roaring and the sun had come out and was edging its way into the afternoon. I was sitting on the cliff edge, my legs dangling over half a mile of emptiness. I was facing due west. Just below me were clouds of seabirds, the gannets and fulmars, kittiwakes and storm petrels, and beside me were the chattering congregations of puffins. Ahead of me, there was just nothing, just an endless crawling sea, hammered like copper in the warm sunshine and stretching far, 50 miles, 100. From up this high, I felt I could have been looking out, out on 500 miles and more. There was an endless vacancy that at this latitude, 62 degrees north or so, I knew would be interrupted only by the basalt cliffs of Greenland, more than a 1,000 miles away. There were no ship's wakes on the sea, no aircraft trails on the sky, just the cool, incessant wind, the cries of the birds and the imagined edge of the known world set down somewhere far beyond my range of sight. And it is very much the same on any Atlantic headland, whether in Africa or the Americas in the Arctic, or from the dozens of other oceanic islands like these, places from where the views are limitless, the horizons finally curved with distance. The view is enough to give the viewer pause. It's just so stupefying, so haunting, the impressions welling up one after another. How eternal the ocean appears and how immense. It is anything but trite to keep reminding oneself how incalculably large the Atlantic happens to be. The big seas are so big 
that after just a little contemplation of this ocean, you understand why it was once perfectly fitting of someone, in this case, Arthur C. Clarke, who knew a thing or two about immensity, to remark on how inappropriate it is to call this planet Earth, when clearly it is sea. Then again, above all the dominant color of this ocean is gray. It is gray and it is slow moving and it is heavy with a steady heaving. The Atlantic is in most places not at all like the Pacific or the Indian Oceans. It is not dominated by the color blue, nor is it overwhelmingly fringed with leaning palm trees and coral reefs. It is a gray and heaving sea, not infrequently storm-bound, ponderous with swells, a sea that in the mind's eye is thick with trawlers, lurching bows up, then crashing down through great white curtains of spume, tankers wallowing across the swells, its weather so often on the verge of gales, and all the while its waters moving with an air of settled purpose, simultaneously displaying incalculable power and inspiring by this display perpetual admiration, respect, caution, and fear. The Atlantic is the classic ocean of our imaginings, an industrial ocean of cold and iron and salt, a purposeful ocean of sea lanes and docksides and fisheries, an ocean alive with squadrons of steadily moving ships above, with unimaginable volumes of mysterious marine abundance below. It is also an entity that seems to be somehow interminable, year in and year out, night and day, warm and cold, century after century. The ocean is always there, an eternal presence in the collective minds of those who live beside it. Derek Walcott, the Nobel laureate poet, wrote in his famous epic work, Omeros, of his fisherman hero Achilles, walking finally and wearily up the shingled slope of an Atlantic beach. He's turned his back on the sea at last, but he knows that even without his seeing it, it is behind him all the while and simply, ponderously, magnificently, ominously continuing to be the sea. The ocean is, quite simply as he wrote, still going on. So that's the setting, really, for the book. And I just want to tell two little stories, one relating, oddly enough, to the pharaohs, and which is utterly ludicrous and without any point at all, and one which is sort of surprising, which relates to the Atlantic and which has a, a great deal of point. And I, I hope it'll give you something of the flavor of the extraordinary, and I, to my mind, rather interesting things I found when I was doing the research. As I mentioned about the pharaohs, the, the topography of the Faroe Islands, they're made of basalt, but they're all tilted over uh, from a high point in the west down to the east. And the cliffs, like the one I was sitting dangling my legs over, are two, two and a half thousand feet high. They're very, very tall cliffs. And then the grass slopes down at about 30 degrees, such that the eastern coasts of all the islands just sort of bleeds off into the ocean. Well, the thing about the Faroese is that they're essentially Vikings. I mean, as I mentioned, the, it's the last vestiges of the Viking language are embodied in Faroese language. And if you remember the reputation of the Vikings is that they're, I mean, it's rape and pillage and, and, and bad behavior, almost all of their existence. But now there they are, corralled into this little group of islands, and no one is at war with the Faroese people. So these enormous Viking men who inhabit the islands I think it can fairly be said, having no one to fight with, have a superabundance of testosterone. They get rid of this in, in a rather an amusing way. At least I find it rather amusing, and I hope you'll find it interesting. It begins each spring when Faroese chaps come in little boats to the bottom of these cliffs, like the one in Mikinesh. And I saw them um, bobbing at the bottom of the cliff. It was very dangerous, and the seaweed and slippery, and it's just this black, wet basalt cliff, except as you look upwards into the mist, you can see, randomly sighted on the cliff, patches of grass, vertiginously steep grass. Well, this is the target of these, um, these testosterone overstimulated chaps, because what they do is they come in small boats and they get themselves to the bottom of the cliffs, which go way, way up into the sky, and there are fixed ropes going down from the very summit of the cliffs all the way down to the sea. So this, the chap positions his boat near one of the ropes and the waves are going up and down and there's all this slippery wet rock in front of him. But he positions himself carefully for the right moment and then leaps 
and jumps onto this slippery piece of rock but grabs onto a rope and he's there. He's now securely at the base of this cliff. Well, before the boat is taken away by his, his fellow Faroese who's in it, he reaches back down into the boat and plucks from the, the well of the boat a lamb. There are lots of lambs, it turns out, in the bottom of this boat. This is the beginning of the spring. And puts it round his neck and then secures it. He sort of balances himself, secures it in his collar so that the lamb is fairly snug and won't fall out. And then he begins, hand over hand, climbing up this sheer rock face. And you see him disappearing into the clouds. I mean, 200 feet, 300 feet, 400 feet, 500 feet, goes way, way up. And you see a tiny little figure. But what happens is that when he gets to about eight or 900 feet up, halfway up the cliff face, he stops beside a patch of this vertiginous grass, grass which is incredibly richly fertilized with puffin guano, which is, I'm sure you'll appreciate, is probably the richest, uh, most nutritious guano that birds can produce because of all the lovely fish they eat. And so this is terribly good and high quality grass. The minor inconvenience is that it is angled about 80 degrees from the horizontal. But nonetheless, when he reaches this patch of grass, he plucks the lamb off his shoulder and holding himself on the rope, he puts the lamb on the grass. And the lamb, of course, looks down and he sees the boiling water a quarter of a mile down below and he's terrified. I don't know if lambs get terrified, but he's sort of not feeling particularly confident and he staggers, but he realizes fairly quickly that if he can position himself and put his legs in the right sort of position, he ought to remain stable. And so the Faroese chap helps him gain his confidence and then after a few moments, the Faroese man realizes that he's now able, perhaps, to take away his hand. And so he says comforting words to the lamb, you know, you're going to be all right. And if I leave you here, and the lamb sort of gives a little lamb thumbs up or something. <laughs> and he takes his hand away, and the lamb remains where it is. And he says, okay, see you later. And he goes back down and joins, you know, Absiles down to the bottom, joins the boat and goes off somewhere else. Well, uh, and you see, if you go to any Faroese cliff, in the summer, you'll see black cliffs dripping with water, these patches of very rich-looking grass, and dotted one per patch of grass, a little lamb. And it, it's all over the, the place. However, what then happens is in September, which is that the Faroese chap, still having failed to find anyone to go to war with and still brimming with, with hormones, comes back to the cliff, finds his original rope, shins up it, and finds not a lamb at all, but instead an enormous and very happy-looking sheep that has been grazing all summer on this grass, has nowhere to go and exercise, and so is happy and very fat and very big. Well, I would like to be able to report to you that uh, the Faroese are a compassionate people uh, towards animals and that he attempts to put this enormous animal around his shoulders, but he doesn't at all. He simply does the converse of what he had done earlier on. He puts his hand on this side of the lamb and pushes outwards with a sudden motion and the lamb tumbles through the space uh, and, and splashes into the sea. And it is, uh, I mean, I know it sounds like a Monty Python moment, but it is a, a known risk to be sailing around the base of the cliffs in the Faroe Islands in September or October because of the risk of being hit by falling sheep, which are <laughs> cascading down in large numbers from the cliffside. So basically all he does is then puts this enormous sheep back in his boat and rows it back to Torshaven, the capital where they butcher it, and declare year after year that it is the finest and most tasty lamb they have ever eaten. So that, that's the story. I mean, there's nothing more to it, and that has no significance, but it's, it gives you, I hope, a taste of the kind of thing. Well, And do go. I mean, it's a wonderful place to go. You get there from Iceland and go and eat lamb and, indeed, puffins. Puffins are utterly revolting to eat. Um, <laughs> the second story has a point to it. Uh, some of you may know the story. I didn't and, and found it absolutely fascinating. The setting, uh, the scenario, is 1916. The summer of 1916, the British, the Royal Navy, were losing the Battle of the Atlantic. There have been two battles of the Atlantic, one in each of the world wars, and both of them are what are called tonnage wars, where German submarines, U-boats, would attempt to interdict and sink eastbound cargo vessels that were bringing much-needed supplies, food, and so forth, to the British Isles. Um, the only real difference between the two battles of the Atlantic was in the Second World War, 
the technology allowed the Germans to fire their torpedoes from underwater, whereas in the First World War, generally speaking, the German submarines had to surface once they had spotted a ship and then fired torpedoes. And the corollary to that was that it was relatively easy for the Royal Navy, if it was uh, on convoy duty for the, con for the convoys to protect the ships, once they saw a German submarine come to the surface, they would fire at it with their guns and with any luck sink it. However, they, in the summer of 1916, they found themselves increasingly frustrated in their ability to sink them for one simple reason, that the naval gunners were running out of cordite which is the propellant for the shells for their guns. They didn't have enough of a crucial chemical component of that cordite, uh, the chemical known as acetone, which the ladies in this audience will presumably know for being nail polish remover. Prior to the, uh, the beginning of the Great War, Britain bought all her acetone from Germany, and clearly the Germans were not going to look too kindly on selling us acetone when we were going to war with them, so we ran out of it, so we had a problem. So that's the background, you should know. In Manchester, the offices of the Manchester Guardian, which is the newspaper that I first worked at, the legendary editor, C.P. Scott, Charles Prestwich Scott, the man who all journalists remember as being the fellow who coined the slogan that comment is free but facts are sacred, he used to have lunch every Tuesday with someone he found interesting. And sometime in, I believe it was July 1916, the person that he deemed interesting and wanted to have lunch with and did have lunch with was the professor of biology at the University of Manchester, a white Russian professor called Haim Weizmann. So he invited Weizmann to the Liberal Club and Weizmann talked about many things. But one of the things he said was that he has in invented an industrial process for producing large quantities of acetone. Now, C.V. Scott had never heard of acetone, wasn't in the slightest bit interested, didn't paint his nails and things, so he wasn't, in the, wasn't very interested, but he squirreled it away in his brain. The following week, he was in London, and he had lunch with David Lloyd George, who at the time was Minister of Munitions for the War Cabinet. And one of the things that Lloyd George said was that the British, the Royal Navy, was having the devil's own time in the battle against the German U-boats because they had run out of cordite and because they didn't have enough of this chemical called acetone. So suddenly, C.B. Scott has heard the word acetone twice in seven days, and a light goes on in his head. And he says to Lloyd George, well, this is most extraordinary. I met a chap up in Manchester, a funny little fellow called Weizmann, who says he can produce acetone in large quantities. And Lloyd George comes to life. I said, this is one, really? He says, I think we ought to have him down to London. So they had Weizmann down to London to meet some civil servants who determined that he wasn't a complete nutcase and, and said, well, what do you need? And he said, well, I, I need two things. The first thing is I need something like a distillery or a brewery. And they said, well, you're in luck because the Nicholson's Gin Factory in Bow in East London, where Bow Bells are rung, um, it's just gone bankrupt. And we, the British government, have taken possession of the site. So would a gin factory? Oh, gin would be lovely. Thank you very much. So, and what's the second thing? Well, the second thing is some, a large quantity of, of cellulose, something with cellulose in it, something like maize. Maize would be great. But they say, well, you can't have maize because that all comes from Canada and it keeps getting torpedoed by the Germans and it's the problem that we're trying to address. So anything else? And he said, well, how about chestnuts? There is a game played in Britain, I used to play it as a child and my children play it, called Conkers every autumn children all over the country would collect horse chestnuts and you would, with a skewer, you'd drill a hole through it and you'd suspend it by a string with a knot on it. It's like a plumb bob. And one boy holds his conker like that and the other boy tries with another one to hit it and break it. Basically, it's a game that all children, or boy children anyway, are obsessed with. They were then and they are now. So the word went out in England in the autumn of 1916 that children could indeed collect conkers but they weren't to play the game. They were to put them in paper bags and they would be collected and taken to London. So the puzzled children did precisely as they were told. They collected these things. Hundreds and hundreds of tons of these things arrived at the Nicholson's gin factory. They were poured into the hoppers and using whatever Haim Weizmann's magic was, slowly first a few drops, then a trickle, then a torrent, then a gush and a torrent of pure acetone came out of the taps. It was put into carboys, put on trains, taken to the British, uh, the Admiralty's ammunition factory and Poole in Dorset, turned into cordite, loaded onto the ships, 
And lo and behold, by the autumn of 1916, the guns started firing again. And by the spring of 1917, it was clear that the whole, uh, the calculus of the, the Battle of the Atlantic has changed in Britain's favor. And no longer were we losing that war, quite the reverse, we were in fact winning it. So come the summer, almost exactly a year later, when it was clear that the war was now going Britain's way and the reason for it was self-evidently the manufacture, the discovery of the technique to manufacture this chemical, some bright person in the British government said, we've got to give this fellow Weizmann some indication of our gratitude. So um, a knighthood would be, the, that's what the British normally do in case, you know, Sir Haim Weizmann, that you've got a nice ring to it, so we'll offer him one of those. But because he was a foreigner, it was decided, because you remember he was a white Russian, that it was up to the British Foreign Secretary to offer him this award. And the Foreign Secretary at the time, in 1917, was Arthur Balfour. So Arthur Balfour sent a message up to the University of Manchester, get this chap, Haim Weizmann, down. And he knew him vaguely, anyway, so the two men knew each other, so it was a meeting of, uh, they were familiar, had him down in the office and said, um, I'd like you to know, on behalf of His Majesty's government, that we're enormously grateful to you having given us this technique for creating acetone and turning the tide of the Battle of the Atlantic. We'd like to give you some sort of recognition. We'd like to offer you a knighthood. Would you be willing, would you be minded, as the phrase has it, to accept it? And Weizmann didn't really think about it for more than a microsecond and said, well, um, Mr. Balfour, it's terribly nice of you, but actually I don't want an honor for myself. But what I would like is if you would issue a declaration on behalf of the British government, because I, as you know, am secretary of the English Zionist League, that you would look with favor upon the establishment of a homeland for the Jewish people in Palestine. And Arthur Balfour said, I think we can probably do that. And so discussions continued throughout the summer. And on the 17th of November, 1917, in a message sent to the president of the World Zionist Foundation, uh, who was uh, uh, Lord Rothschild, but with a copy sent in gratitude for his work in um, the creation of acetone to Haim Weizmann was the formal declaration, the Balfour Declaration, that His Majesty's government would look with favor upon the establishment of a national homeland for the Jewish people in Palestine. That was the famous Balfour Declaration, which underpinned the creation of the State of Israel in 1948. So Israel was created out of chemistry and in the Atlantic Ocean, far away, of course, from where Israel now exists. So that, I think, was a, a more important story um, that shows how the Atlantic pervades the world's uh, lives in a much more pervasive way than, than we might ordinarily have thought. So there you are. You have an utterly pointless story about falling sheep <laughs> and a rather more pointed one about the creation of Israel. And I think now I'll leave it there and I'll prepare to be grilled after some music. The delightful Simon Winchester, doing what he does best, telling stories that are both riveting and informing. He read in front of a packed house at the Music Hall in Portsmouth for the writers on a New England stage series. After a brief check-in on the world news from the BBC, we'll be back with my conversation with Simon Winchester about an ocean that transformed from barrier to bridge and connected the ancient to the modern worlds. This is Word of Mouth on NHPR. We're back with word of mouth and a conversation with best-selling author Simon Winchester from the Writers on a New England Stage series. Today, the mighty Atlantic Ocean is sometimes called the pond. It's a kind of inconvenience that separates America from the rest of the world. Simon Winchester dives into the significant history of the ocean at a full run, chartering boats to remote islands, combing through dusty archives, and visiting forlorn museums to uncover seaborne stories that reveal not only where civilization has been, indicating where it might be going. Before the break, he talked about the powerful indifference and eternal nature of the ocean and about Atlantic warfare that continues to influence geopolitics today. I sat down with Simon Winchester live on stage and asked if he ever feared that a biography of an ocean might be overreaching. 
I thought it might be a problem, but I've always maintained that uh, those few occasions that I've been asked to teach writing, I say that the, the three components in order of importance are the idea, first and foremost, the structure, and then the writing. Not to say that the writing is unimportant, but of the three, it's the least important. The first, the, the idea has to be a cracker. And then how do you corral this idea that you hope is a cracker into a manageable form? And, and I thought I was overreaching myself until Shakespeare. Yes, tell us about how you, how you created that parallel between the stages of life in the play, as you like it, and the ocean. Well, I was, I was traveling across the ocean, and I, one of the books that I usually take with me on a, on a voyage anywhere is a slim anthology of poetry by a, the former British Foreign Secretary, a chap called David Owen, Lord Owen now, uh, and it was called Seven Ages. He organized the poems that he loved according to the Seven Ages from, as you say, from As You Like It. And if you remember those Seven Ages, they are uh, the infant mewling and puking in his nurse's arms, the whining schoolboy with shining morning face, the, the lover, uh, the soldier, uh, the justice, uh, the old man, and the return to childhood. So he had done it, and, and you know, all his poems about the soldier relate to you know, famous poems, you know, the boy stood on the burning deck and all the famous, th that kind of poetry. Uh, and I thought, my gosh, I could apply that structure to the Atlantic Ocean. And then it wouldn't seem as if I was overreaching myself so far, quite so far, because it would enable me, I could put all the artistic material that I could find, you know, about painting and poetry and architecture into the lover chapter. I could put fighting, I could put slavery, I could put piracy, all sorts of unpleasantness into the soldier chapter. And it seemed to give me a structure. And then I, up to that moment, I'd been terrified of the book. This is an unmanageable subject mm. because I'm overreaching myself. But the Shakespeare connection suddenly made me realize it might be possible. Shakespeare comes through again. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it struck me as a a kind of charting of the human consciousness of the ocean, you know, awareness of the ocean in this transition from being this monster-laden obstacle to travel somewhere out there to a vehicle for trade and for abundant possibility and wealth. Tick through us, if you would, some of those kind of indications of the changes and that transition in attitude. Well, I mean, I think a, a good one is, is the moment at which and this would come in, I, I think, chapter one, when humankind first ventured out into the Atlantic, which was the, and it was, of course, it was trade that made us go to, to ignore our fears. And it was the Phoenicians that first did it. So the Phoenicians operating out of their ports of Tyre and Sidon in the eastern Mediterranean and the Levant, um, operating in a sea that's relatively calm. I mean, I'm not going to suggest there are no storms in the Mediterranean, but they're not utterly ferocious. And they have these little boats called Galloy and Hippoi, which are well suited for the kind of maritime conditions. And they are well aware that when they sail to places like Malaga, in the very far west of the ocean, that beyond the Pillars of Hercules, beyond Gibraltar to the north and Jebel Musa to the south, there is another ocean which is terribly different the sea of perpetual gloom, as Homer had called it. Frightening, filled with monsters. It's where Atlantis is. It's where probably the edge of the world is. You know, you sail out there and you fall off the edge. So they were frightened, but they thought that, that why, well, essentially they thought, why not give it a go? Perhaps it's not as bad as all that. And that must have been an amazing moment, about seven centuries B.C., when some sailor said, let's go beyond the Pillars of Hercules, let's see if it's as bad as everyone thinks it is, sailed out into the ocean and there wasn't a monster and they didn't encounter an edge and didn't fall off it. And that's when everything began to change. And you marked that shift from the Mediterranean focus society to the Atlantic. What are some of the innovations and the benchmarks signifying that shift? 
well. They're, they're where to begin. I mean, uh, I let, let's say there are some that you mark in the 15th century that I think are important. Well, although I actually would, would go earlier than that, and this book is, I know, going to make me desperately unpopular. It's going to deny me restaurant reservations in Italian restaurants <laughs> in, in Little Italy. all over in Little Italy because, <laughs> because I try and rem remind people something that you know, is well known, that, but school children are really not taught. They are taught in 1492, Columbus crossed the ocean or sailed the ocean blue. Of course he did, but he wasn't the first. Mm. Who was the first? Uh, the first was a Norwegian, Leif Erikson, the son of Eric the Red, who got over to North America and which, of course, uh, Lee, uh, Christopher Columbus did not. I mean, he was stopped at Hispaniola or Watlings Island, Salvador. Leif Erikson built a settlement. I mean, it wasn't discovered until 1960, but the, then there in the north of uh, Newfoundland, there is this exquisite little settlement with little sod houses in which evidence of raising cattle and the metal implements and so forth. And not only did they settle there, but they had a child there. I'm, I'm so charmed by the by the, the name of the first European baby born in North America in 1002. He was called Snorri Thorfinson. <laughs> I, I, I think Snorri's a, lo a lovely name. I, I'm, sort of I'm sure it will make the most popular well, names it, list well, soon enough. Certainly my, my dog, which is <laughs> all he seems to do is snore. So. But um, the thing about, about Leif Erikson is that they they had come essentially to the wrong latitude because the weather in northern Newfoundland is as atrocious as it is in Norway. And so they thought after a few years, well, no, this isn't an awfully great amount of fun. Let's leg it back. And they went back home and took Snorri with them. Snorri eventually passed away back in, in, near Stavanger in, in Norway. Whereas, of course, 491 years later, when Columbus sailed the ocean blue, although he didn't settle there, it was evident that this is a place much more benign with, with decent weather and sunshine and you know, crops could be grown and people could settle there and, and not run away home. So yes, it was a big change, but he was not the first. And I'm just rather sad that in America, you know, District of Columbia and Columbus, mm. Ohio and all the rest of it, and poor Leif Erikson gets nothing except some shops that close in <laughs> Minneapolis and Madison, Wisconsin, and that's about it. Why? Why this perpetuation of this misreading of history? I, I don't know. I mean, tritely, I say that it's um, that Americans prefer pizza to lutefish. Um, <laughs> and who can blame and us? And who can blame them, indeed? So they should have a better weather and, a, and better cuisine than Norwegians, I think. They're their own worst enemies. This was the first I had heard of this settlement, and it was absolutely fascinating. And it raises a question that one of the audience members asked, how do you do your research individually by staff? I mean, I know that you visited there, didn't you? Yes, I mean, I, I, uh, how do I do my research? I mean, I, I travel to an awful lot of places, and, and I, I read an awful lot. I so enjoy the research. I mean, the research... It's such an extraordinary privilege to be given a contract by a publisher to, to learn something. I mean, everything that I've been telling you is, is not stuff that I've known for years. It's stuff that I find out. And to find out all about Lanso Meadows, which is the settlement, the Bay of the Jellyfish in northern Newfoundland, where this adorable little settlement was built, to learn about Snorri. You know, it's, it's a huge privilege to learn about Haim Weizmann. Uh, and so it, it's a constant and tremendously enjoyable quest. I, I couldn't enjoy anything more. The writing is fun too, but the research is the most fun. There is some evidence that pre-Columbian people sailed east. Scant evidence, and you're not quite buying it. Can you give us a little bit on that? Well, scant is the word. I mean, there are, there's anecdotal evidence, for instance, in some marginalia. Coca leaves have been found in the sarcophagi of tombs, uh, sarcophagi in, uh, in Lower Egypt, which, you know, if true, is fairly profound. Um, but these are as fanciful pieces of evidence as the evidence for the Chinese involvement in, you know, the European Renaissance and that kind of thing. Very little. I wonder why. Why? Why there wasn't that kind well, of push. Well, oh, I agree. I'm Egypt. sorry. Considering that it's so much easier to sail, sail from west to east. I mean, you've got the prevailing winds in the North Atlantic are westerlies, and so you can just get blown over to Ireland and, 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 uh, and England. And yet, the people that did first cross the Atlantic did
did so against these forces. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it is in, incredibly surprising. But the technology still it simply wasn't here. You also write about many of the ancient poems and later the paintings, the music inspired by the Atlantic. Why do you think it's so captivating and inspiring to the makers of art? Well, that, in, in a way, that was one of the most difficult uh, chapters to write because there is such an abundance of, of expressions, if you like, of, of human love. I mean, this is the chapter three and going back to the Shakespearean structure. Um, but I, when, as soon as I found the first Anglo-Saxon poem devoted to the Atlantic Ocean is in a book called The Exeter Codex, which is in Exeter Cathedral, beautiful piece of work in and of itself just to look at. And there is this exquisite poem called The Seafarer in which the, 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 the author, who's not, we don't know who he is, is going on about how terrifyingly majestic the sea is and how when he's at sea, he longs to be home. And it's his imagining the beauty of the English countryside while in the middle of a sea where he can't see any land and when it's just all salt and gray and perhaps seabirds and fish. And yet it doesn't overwhelm him. He can come to terms with it. And this is the, the evolution of poems in which you can see the poet moving away from the ocean as something terrifying into something majestic, something to be respected, loved, and admired. This happens in all the artistic fields. It happens in painting, it happens in music, but particularly in literature and poetry. And it, it, it's, once I had read The Seafarer, I then began to, as it were, to get it. There is often a distinction, though, between the American view, both artistically, like you use the example of Winslow Homer, comparing paintings to Turner, who was the English painter. The difference in the way that those two cultures look at the Atlantic Ocean. Can you speak to that? Yes, because in a way, the interior of America was so vast and so formidable and so equally unknown to Americans in the 18th and 19th century that they had a sort of solid form of their own Atlantic to deal with. So the British, you know, our country is, is, is manageable. It's small, it's... it's it's easily encompassed in the mind. The ocean is not. The ocean to us is unutterably and incomparably magnificent. Someone living in Maine who knows a little about the Manifest Destiny and about the America that stretches for an equally long distance, 3,000 miles, almost exactly the same, that is as unknown and majestic as is the Atlantic Ocean. And so Americans managed very quickly to get a better handle on the awesome nature of the ocean than I think the British. And if you compare J.M.W. Turner's paintings, for instance, of storms at sea, they are utterly overwhelming. Whereas you look at Winslow Homer's paintings of storms at sea, and it's almost as if he's saying, yeah, they're great, but wait and see till you see the Dust Bowl in Nebraska, or wait till you see an avalanche in Montana. That's just as terrifying. There's so much of that kind of duality when looking at the Atlantic, especially the history, if you consider the millions of people who came over here from Europe for the possibility of new life, compared to the 11 million slaves who were brought here for a life of misery. It's that kind of duality of the experience of the ocean. And I just wondered how you sorted that, how you approach that in your mind. Well, I think by learning about it in the writing of it and having not really hitherto realized it, and then being astonished and drawing some, some kind of conclusions about how America was built by two waves of seaborne people, if you like. One brought here involuntarily and one who came here voluntarily. And the melting pot is of these two groups of people. Mm. I love the fact, and I discovered this really when we were bobbing around in the Atlantic recently doing a piece for NPR, that it is a tradition in many European seaside cities to put up great statues of explorers, you know, Columbus in Genoa or John Cabot or, or Vespucci or any of the, the, you know, these huge bronze figures of these people looking out to see people with names, men usually, that we admire. But in America, in New York, the statue is not of a person, it's a statue to an idea. The idea 
of liberty. And the emotional pull that must have had on these millions who came, having paid three pounds each or so, to go from Liverpool or Glasgow or the Mediterranean cities or the, Western, uh, the ports in Western Europe, to come to New York to be processed, first of all at Castle Clinton in Lower Manhattan, and then in this purpose-built immigration center in Ellis Island, to see a statue which didn't say in a grandiloquent way, this is an emblem of exploration, but an idea of what you're coming to take part in, I just think is, is momentous. Well, it's a fascinating book and in a very interesting time after the horrible BP oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico, for example, a shift in people's thinking about the oceans and the life that comes from the ocean. And that is, of course, a very important point for you. You call it the forgotten ocean. Well, it sort of is because it's the pond. It's something we, semantically we, we diminish in the way we speak about it. And it is simply an expanse of distance. between. If you're on the milk run flight between New York and London or between Frankfurt and, and Washington, it's just that sort of irritating distance that you look at the little map and the seat thing in front of you thinking, when is this going to be over, you know? <laughs> when do we at least the plane get over Newfoundland or Anticosti Island or somewhere, you know, where I can see land and people and people driving on the proper side of the road and that kind of thing? <laughs> um, and I think this, the, the, the diminution, I mean, when I first traveled in, in 1963, it was on a proper ship. And the ship moved with the waves and you, could, you were encouraged to be on deck and there were seagulls when you were near land and you could see passing ships and so forth. You felt at one with the ocean. But even when you go on a ship these days, the kind of ships that you're, most people are invited or encouraged to go on, they encourage you not to go out at all. Mm. They stabilize them so that you barely know that you're moving. And you're encouraged to go and spend your money in the casinos or the restaurants or the Prada shops or whatever and uh, bring endless profits to the cruise line. I vow that if I'm ever invited by Cunard to go and talk about this book on a transatlantic ocean liner, that any talk I give has to be on an open-air deck. People simply have to dress up in warm clothing and come and listen to me shouting into the gale. <laughs> There is in this book a kind of nostalgia in some sense for those who eke out a living on the treacherous and dangerous seas, the fishermen, the explorers, the Navy fighters, those who have made a living on this precarious sea. And even you write about the 3,800 Gloucester fishermen who were killed in fishing accidents or at sea in the 19th century. What are you nostalgic for? Is it the scale? Is it the adventure? What is it? I think, I, I, I mean, Rudyard Kipling. I mean, Captain's Courageous. Yeah. People who, who go out into the fishing grounds, it's such a hard life, and yet it's a life... Uh, I mean, think of Maze. I, I must down to the seas again, to the lonely sea and the sky, and all I want is a tall ship and a star to steer her by. I mean, that poem that I learned when I was six, I should think, especially in England. I mean, I was brought up by the sea, I wanted to join the Royal Navy, mm. but I couldn't. <laughs> but as I told you, as we were waiting to go on, it's, I mean, maybe this is what the book is all about. Uh, the, the, if you can imagine this moment, I'm a 16 or 17-year-old schoolboy, and my dream is to, at the age I am now, which is 66, to be in command of an aircraft carrier mm. in sort of crisp, white, tropical shorts. I'd be a vice admiral putting down small wars in remote corners of our empire. <laughs> That seems to me to be an ideal. So I went along full of high hopes to the Royal Navy Academy in Dartmouth in southwest England, and I took all the written exams, and they found me sound in wind and limb and psychologically apparently able to command a ship. And then on the what turned out to be the last day of a series of interviews, this doctor showed me a book, and he opened it. It was a ring-backed book, and he opened it up, and there was this circle with colored dots and he said, what number do you see? And I said, 46. And he said, I beg your pardon? And I said, 46. He said, hang on a bit and turn to the next page. What number do you see there? And I said, 27. And he shut the book with this terrible finality and said, I'm terribly sorry to have to tell you this, but Her Majesty looks somewhat unkindly at uh, people that cannot tell red from green, oh. steering her very expensive warships around the world. <laughs> so you will never join the Royal Navy. So I think this book is, in a way, making up for all of that. 
Well, Simon Winchester, I think we're all the beneficiaries of your colorblindness in that case. And that, that's, you have this almost Forrest Gump-like quality to be in the right place at the right time. I mean, you were the Irish correspondent, national correspondent during Bloody Sunday. You were covering Washington in the Watergate years. You happened to be in the Falkland Islands, didn't you, in 1982 when war broke out? And I wonder, do you believe in destiny for one thing? <laughs> I don't know, my, my publicist is always alarmed when I go and write about particularly a geological episode that uh, it's going to happen again. And indeed, when I went out to, well, I was in New Zealand the other day on a publicity tour, Christchurch was destroyed the day I was there. So... Um, is it, do you think this is your no, destiny? No, absolutely not. No, of course not. <laughs> nothing to do with me. I was, I was there, but I had nothing to do with it. It came I'm, apart in my hand. But I, I mean, maybe the question of... You have the gift or the ability to record this and to tell these stories. Do, well, you, do, you, do you feel that? I, I, I couldn't possibly say that. You might say it, but I couldn't possibly <laughs> confirm it. I, I just want to tell you one thing. I know we don't have a great deal of time, but talking about Bloody Sunday, I mean, I wrote this report in 1972 saying, having seen all these people shot dead, that I thought that the British forces fired unnecessarily into the crowd and got terribly criticized for it. So the Guardian sent me back when the report on that was published this June. And I went back, and obviously everyone was now 38 years older. It was quite extraordinary, very moving. And I wrote this piece because David Cameron said, yes, that was right. The, the official inquiry shows that none of the victims had been carrying any weapon or deserved to be shot dead. When I got back to New York three days later, I had an email from a 94-year-old lady. And she said, you won't remember me. I have met you when you were a small boy. You may possibly remember the name of my husband, George Crawshaw, who was the doctor to your grandparents. Now, the reason I'm writing to you is that I remember in 1972 reading the piece you wrote in The Guardian, and I thought, here is a reporter that's telling the truth. Well, which was very nice. I've read your piece today in The Guardian, 38 years later, and while it, you know, the vindication of what you said is unimportant in the scheme of things, the important thing is that the victims have been vindicated at long last. Yes, you've also been vindicated, but there's one other person that you don't know has been vindicated. Your grandmother, when she was widowed, she was alone living in this village in, in, in Dorset, after the publication of your piece on the 30th of January, 1972, for a week subsequent to that, she was insulted in the streets by people that would say, how dare you have a grandson that would write such appalling, untrue propaganda attacking the British Army in this left-wing rag of a newspaper, The Guardian. She was spat at, she was insulted, but she bore it with total dignity and equanimity, never told her son, my father, and never told me. But, said Susan Crawshaw, she will, now long dead of course, feel vindicated too, that she was right. And I thought that was the most touching of all things I think has ever happened to me as a reporter. Well, I'm so glad we got to hear it. <laughs>